I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Well, it's a very great pleasure to be here, although I have to confess, and I think Pankaj feels the same about this, that I'm really nervous because I haven't really seen an embodied audience for quite a long time. <laughs> I, I don't quite, it, certainly, you know, uh, a year, maybe more. Um, and so please don't behave too much like humans because we may not know what to do. <laughs> But I'm very, very happy to be here and particularly happy to be talking to Pankaj about his new novel. Um, that's because I really, really, really enjoyed it. And it gave me the kind of pleasure um, that I associate with reading 19th century fiction of the best kind, of course, mostly French. <laughs> like Balzac and Flaubert, and, and um, there's very much, some, for me, something of the Bildungsroman, the, the uh, sentimental education, political, social education, the young man moving through not only uh, school and university, but the world, and I, I read the book in that way. Uh, and what's interesting about that kind of book, this kind of book, is that it gives you not only the life of in this case, the narrator and his good friends, um, and uh, eventually a woman, um, but but also the society around them and the kinds of interactions that take place, which have to do with class, center and periphery, uh, politics, and and in the case of India and what Pankaj is covering, the whole move. Uh, from a society which in many ways was traditional and caught up in caste as well as class and empire uh, to uh, world finance capital and uh, I guess what populist religion in the case of Modi. Uh, it's, it's a very rich book. But the first thing I want to ask Pankaj, because of course like the rest of you, I've been reading his other books that aren't fiction in the interim and I too have moved occasionally between fiction and non-fiction, but I wanted to know what it meant for you, Pankesh, to go back to the fictional form um, after so many years doing other things, other kinds of writing. Thank you, uh, Lisa. First of all, also let me say what an honor it is to be um, discussing this book with you. And obviously, I've been reading you, like many people here, for years and years, so I was especially delighted to know that you liked this book, liked it enough at least to Mm. discuss it here. Um, you know, I've been toying with different answers to that question over the last couple of weeks because I've 
been doing some publicity around it. And something I read just yesterday, just randomly uh, reading for a piece I have to write, and I came across a remark by Rudyard Kipling. It says, when you know you can do something, do something else. And that was roughly my experience with journalism or the kind of books I've been writing or the kind of pieces or essays I've been writing. I began to feel that there was no real challenges involved in doing many of those pieces. Uh, that even when I was being asked to, you know, expand my knowledge or, or go to another place or learn about it, what I was producing was still too formulaic. It was following the formula of the magazine story of the magazine essay. And that there wasn't enough of a creative challenge there, whether it's the, the, the reportage or book of intellectual history or, or even the memoir, which is you know, probably the most capacious form uh, in terms of accommodating emotional realities or, or moral lives. So I felt really, I mean, fiction I was drawn to during all these years while I was writing nonfiction. Uh, always, you know, seduced by uh, books of fiction. I was reading them all this time, sometimes writing about them. And then I felt, you know, over 20 years, I had accumulated an experience that I could not describe a nonfiction, you know, and, and I felt... That's what we want to hear about. We want to hear what you couldn't describe in the nonfiction. Yes, and, and those were, you know, those were things you just could not do in nonfiction, you know, like describing the inner lives of, of, of people who had made, you just pointed out in your introduction, made this massive socioeconomic leap from one century to another, really, um, in, 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 in terms of material growth, in terms of the freedoms that were suddenly available to them, professional freedoms, sexual freedoms, uh, the freedom of mobility, you know, people born in one particular part of India, suddenly, you know, traveling all over the world, owning multiple houses across the world. This was all really, for, for, for many of us, a bewildering experience. And there was no way nonfiction could, could get at it could describe that, uh, what, what happens to the lives of people, by which I mean their lives as sons, husbands, lovers, uh, uh, brothers, sisters, uh, what kind of transformations are affected in, in, in private lives. Um, and so, you know, you ha I had to sort of go back to fiction. And there were other, other, other motives too. I mean, there were vast aspects of my own experience for instance, growing up in small railway towns that I'd never touched, uh, that I'd never really written about, you know, partly because there wasn't much of an opportunity in the in the nonfiction work I was doing. So I wanted to go back to that, recapture certain moments from those years, which uh, in a way feel particularly distant now, much more distant than they actually are. You know, it's only 30, 40 years ago uh, that those experiences occurred, but because of the massive changes in India, they feel like they happened a century ago. This world I'm describing where there was no television, no cinema, or, or, or there was cinema, very, very infrequent. Uh, the only mean of communication was the radio or the newspapers that arrived a day late from, from Delhi. So a completely different world. And that's also something living, in, living now in this sort of hyper-connected world I wanted to rediscover for, 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 for myself. Um, so that was another kind of motivation, among, among, among several others. Well, it's very interesting. I mean, 
it struck me reading this that you yourself were discovering things as you were writing, it, because fiction allows you to do that, that you can see the things that you love and hate within the same person and within the same set of circumstances, so that you almost end up changing your mind. I mean, I know when I write fiction, quite often, it's the person I least understand <laughs> that I get closest to in the writing, because that's what you really want to discover. And sometimes it's the people you like the least that you discover the most about. Absolutely true. I mean, there is a, a quite a well-known line by B.S. Naipaul, how autobiography always conceals and fiction always reveals. And I think what he means by this is when you're writing fiction, you're revealing aspects of yourself that even you are not really truly aware of. And I think, you know, that's one of the miraculous or or exhilarating things about writing fiction is that it, it allows you to confront these different selves, not all of them pleasant, uh, not all of them ones you would like to own up to, but nevertheless, you know, it's that it's that encounter that also makes fiction writing uh, so mysterious and 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 rewarding at, at the same time. And again, I mean, this was um, a, a new experience for me because nonfiction, you just never have that kind of experience. You know, your 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 facts around which you're going to build your narrative are given to you or you acquire them through travel or through reading, and then you build, you construct a narrative around those uh, particular facts. Um, but this uh, process of, or, or, or endeavor of digging stuff out of yourself that you weren't even aware existed was definitely for me something, something new. And it was such a long time ago that I wrote my first novel, it felt like something new. Yes. Well, it's interesting, too, because the characters, in a sense, engage in politics and change. So there are three main male characters in this book who are friends at university. And the narrator is one of those. And I think the scene you're going to read from us for us, which comes early in the book, we thought we'd, Pankaj would do a reading, which I haven't heard him do before, actually takes him back to his childhood um, and to uh, an India which... Well, some of you may know. I certainly don't know. So, so I'm going to read from a chapter uh, which is uh, which occurs early in the narrative, and it's about the narrator's childhood, of him growing up in a in a in a small town, with uh, with an extremely aggressive father, uh, a very abusive father, in fact, uh, who has uh, who sells essentially uh, tea and samosas uh, from a from a from a railway stall from a stall on a on a railway station. He returns home late in the evening, having sold off his samosas to the last of the trains and carefully notes the day's takings in a notebook of ruled paper. The station, desolate for most of the day, is transformed by many explosions of energy when the trains emerge, breathily roaring and coughing around the bend at a level crossing. The black engines with cow catchers that appear demonic with splayed metal teeth but turn out to trail some tame wooden carriages and, with a short desperate shriek and grinding of brakes, shudder to a standstill. The platform suddenly starts to seethe, and Baba needs several arms to meet the hands proffering coins and sweat-soiled notes across the counter, grabbing biscuits, samosas, and pan, while speedily counting cash and then throwing it into a greasy drawer below his shelves, he seems briefly to dance. The long stalked fans circling overhead seem more helpless 
Great billowing whirls of steam shroud one part of the platform in white. Gray male bags heaved out of the guard van land with loud thugs and the dogs start to howl. Business is conducted mostly during these interludes of extreme disorder, which is abruptly heightened to a frenzy by the thin, keen blast of the station master's silver whistle and the waving of the guard's tattered green flag. Silence descends rapidly after the trains take their bad temper to the countryside. The rhythmic creak and whine of the hand pump can be heard again on the platform. But my father is fuming as he distributes his unsold samosas to the station's perennially hungry residents. Suddenly tired of the recipients of his charity shoving and swearing at each other, his arm leaps out in the crowd of ragged faces, faces and cuffs someone on the ear or cheek. Back home, he likes to complain about the weather. What kind of weather is this? The sweepers who fail to show up for work they're all freeloaders, these Harijan employees. The occasional peasant who dares to hawk roasted corn cobs and sliced cucumbers at the station, and Muslims in general. These Muhammadans are such fanatics. His most favorite target is corruption, and it is true that hardly a day passes without some kind of swindle. The merchants who sell him weevil infested flour and withered beetle leaves, the chokra vendors of his chai who hide their true earnings as nimbly as they balance rows of nesting clay cups on their arms, the stealthy gamblers in black overalls who leave smudges of coal on his playing cards and don't pay him the right commission, and even customers passing on torn currency, they all try it on. The engine drivers and linesmen and signalmen steal coal, the contractor for railway laborers inflates his invoices. But he, a swindler himself, underpaying the underage boys he employs, is really complaining about his own life and the lives of so many men like him. Being shoved around by the station master, who incessantly berates him for dirtying the platform, the local thanedar who demands his own share of the tiny commission from the gamblers, the junior staff of the government hospital miles away, who keeps him waiting for hours for a blood test, the Brahmin teachers at primary school who openly condescend to him, as though guessing at his low-caste origins from his obsequiousness before them, and even the clerk at the post office, who, while gently tearing along the perforated edge of the Gandhi face stamps behind a dusty grill, snaps at him. It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful portrait of the father in the book, the father of the narrator, Arun. And um, the father himself has a very interesting trajectory. And I don't know whether you just want to tell us a little bit about that, because having managed to send his son to school, well, tell us a little about what... Well, I mean, he's... he's in political dream, terms, if you don't want to give away plot. Um, his dream is of social mobility, um, and it's a dream that he shares with uh, tens of millions of people. His dream is of getting as far away as possible from this life of degradation and humiliation uh, he has been born to. And he sees his son really as a ticket out of this, this, this particular life. He's also managed to pass off his son as a Brahmin. And this is again a very commonplace practice. So you just change the surname on a school certificate and give your son a different surname, although he himself belongs to uh, a low caste. So all these sort of particular attempts um, to somehow break free of this 
life of uh, humiliation that he has to that he has to suffer. And then, of course, uh, we see him later in in, um, in in the present when he is in his 80s and um, he's turned into this very rabid uh, supporter of Hindu nationalism. In fact, he's the only character of that kind uh, that that exists in the novel. Uh, someone with very pronounced uh, political views um, of the kind that have become very notorious. And, and it's, it's a wonderful transformation, of course. Um, not one that I particularly anticipated, because why would I think that? <laughs> well, I mean, I think, um, again, you know, obviously fiction has its own logic and its own momentum. But I do think that for a lot of people, the, this particular regime has offered a way to express their humiliation, the sense of humiliation. How do they express it? How do they express it? They express it by finding people to hate, uh, the metropolitan liberals, the English-speaking liberals. And this is what the demagogues uh, in India today have su successfully accomplished, is to give many people who've lived lives of extreme meanness, of extreme degradation, someone to hate, someone to despise, or someone to blame for that plight. Their, their lives have not materially improved, uh, certainly not to the extent that they had hoped, but what has been given to them is this very seductive enemy, this, 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 this enemy you can be obsessed with and you can spend your days and nights hating that particular enemy. And he, I, 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 I thought of his father as, as, as one of the many, many, many people. Uh, but it was very interesting to me to see that, because I'm interested in emotion, <laughs> um, that one of the perhaps almost almost primary emotions that recur in all the characters is this sense of humiliation, a kind of shame, whether it's vis-a-vis -vis caste or class or or a kind of idealized version of other people's lives. And just tell us a little bit more about that in terms of the other characters as well and India, perhaps America, perhaps Britain, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I think, again, I mean, this is not a subject I could really go much into in my in my nonfiction, but I, I, I do think this is an underexplored subject. Uh, the sense of humiliation that many people live with, which is exacerbated even as they experience, you know, rapid social mobility, even as they move out of, say, a low caste or a low class and become rich, but these early injuries inflicted on them when they are young uh, leave very deep, very, very deep scars. And so they are really, in that sense, deeply tormented people. And that torment manifests itself in all kinds of ways in their, in their, in their public lives, in their private lives. I think one reason why it has not been much uh, covered, uh, I'm just speculating here, is because we have bought into, in the last three decades, into the ideology of meritocracy and the idea that social mobility is possible, uh, I, I, you know, the line that is often repeated in the, in the book that you, can, you are nothing, but you can become something. So once you become something, you can break free of that, that, that past and you can leave it behind. So there is this expectation that we are all now, you know, essentially belonging to, if not exactly a post-racial society, you know, also an idea that was much mooted uh, after 2008, after, Obama's election, that we're moving towards a classless society of some kind, where people deploying their merit or their talents uh, in the best way possible can achieve these or get to these summits of prosperity and stability, and things will be fine from then on. 
but um, I think these particular feelings of feeling shame because you speak English with the wrong accent because of certain lack of cultural capital, because you've not heard of certain books, because you've not heard of certain restaurant rituals. Uh, these work invisibly upon people in ways that I don't think, I mean, I, th I feel political psychology or sociology hasn't really begun to, to reckon with. It forms a kind of, you know, somewhat, somewhat sort of marginal uh, aspect of intellectual inquiry. But, you know, again, it's only in fiction that you can that you can explore this, this, this properly. Just what does that lingering sense of uh, humiliation does to people in, 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 the, in the long term? So you, you begin uh, one of the earliest sort of set pieces in the book is the scene when the three main characters meet at school, uh, university, at this Institute of Technology. And um, this is their path to freedom and financial success, but it's also a place where shame is inflicted on them. So there's a kind of double whammy already going on in there. Tell us a little bit about these characters, because one of them you're going to read a little bit about, but one of them doesn't come in in our reading, in your readings. And I'm very interested in him because he's the writer, uh, Asim, and um, I thought he was an extraordinary character. So tell us about him. Well, Three men, this is one of them. Um, so, yeah, so there, there are two male uh, French friends, um, and actually three of them, but two much, much, much closer. And the character Lisa is referring to is someone who also goes to the Indian Institute of Technology, but then uh, decides to become a writer and then first becomes a journalist and then becomes a, uh, then becomes a novelist. Very sure of himself, very confident, also comes from, uh, has a very modest uh, background. And he grows up, like all of these characters, just at the right time, late 80s, early 90s, when it was possible for a lot of young Indians to suddenly avail of the opportunities being opened up by globalization, by increased sort of travel, uh, much better communications. So, you know, they were able to read a lot. They were able to travel a great deal. And he's one of those people who embraces all those opportunities and sees them as essentially also soon available to other people around him. So in other words, someone who completely believes in the modern ideology of progress, of self-expansion, of self-assertion, and continuously harps uh, on, 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 on this theme uh, to his friends, to other people. And a large part of his self-image is his sort of notion of sexual freedom, uh, how uh, India is becoming sexually more free and, and, and more open, and this is a good thing, we are connecting back to our older, older traditions. And he turns into a, you know, a, a, a sort of cultural impresario, a magazine editor, a novelist, someone who also hosts uh, literary festivals and intellectual festivals. And again, I mean, I think um, I've observed uh, several of these trajectories over the last um, uh, two decades, three decades or so. And it's been fascinating to see uh, just how even at the height of fulfillment, even when you've achieved everything, you've, you've got every kind of celebrity under the same, under the same roof. Uh, you've got uh, Hollywood film stars, Bollywood film stars, the world's greatest writers, and yet something is missing. Something is missing. So this, this, this whole uh, 
particular trajectory, uh, which is so tragic in some in, 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 in many ways, this sort of, you know, this very honorable attempt to leave behind the a life of, of, of degradation. But then this embrace of prosperity and new sexual freedoms also turns into a very darkly ambiguous affair. And so fulfillment, again, then becomes this, you know, project that is not going to be so easy, easily realized. And this is, again, you know, this is, again, a sort of experience that has, uh, that I've observed, indeed, I've observed in, in my own life, which, you know, made me think of just how many different modes of ambiguity um, are concealed by the kind of broader discourse about the rise of India, or the rise of China, what is actually happening in, 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 in people's lives, even as they make these spectacular journeys from destitution to, you know, heading Silicon Valley companies. So it, it's not giving away too much, and this happens on the first two pages. Um, if, I, if I say something, ask a question around something which is actually, uh, you know, a punchline. <laughs> but um, the way you structure the book, it's actually an address from the narrator, Arun, uh, whose father we have just met, um, uh, writing to the one central woman of the book, Aliyah, who is also a would-be writer and Muslim. And um, she is attempting to write a book about the circle around the third of these young men whom we haven't yet met, a man called Varindra, have I got that right, um, who, who is in jail uh, after having made a lot of money uh, in America. And Arun is going to tell her about the real lives, not the ones that she can pick up either from his best but rivalrous friend um, and the papers and so on. So uh, it's a very interesting way to structure a novel as a kind of letter to an addressee that you meet in various ways in the book and who becomes the principal um, love object, if you like, uh, or love subject of, of the heroes, the narrators. Um, and I was wondering why you chose it, because in a sense it, it allows for confession, but it's also uh, because it's got an addressee to whom things need to be proved. It's not quite a confession. It's very interesting. Tell us. Oh, thank you. Um... Well, first of all, I mean, I think um, it was important for me to make Arun the, the, the narrator because I wanted it to be uh, a novel of consciousness, really, uh, a novel of sensibility. And Arun seemed to me like the kind of character who's not political, who's not part of this world that he's describing, who's on the margins. And also, importantly, he's a translator. Uh, I feel like translators occupy a very unique position. They're obviously indispensable. And at the same time, they're invisible. Um, and I felt that this is a this is an interesting position for for Aaron to occupy in this in this narrative. But then there was the problem of what event forces him to break out of his natural reticence. He's a he's a very withdrawn, self-facing character. Um, so he had to be in a way provoked into speech by something that happens to him. And uh, once I sort of could figure that out, um, I could also see that addressing the book to someone who's writing about somewhat similar things, but from a journalistic perspective, might actually, uh, first of all, be a very economical way of uh, narrating the story, uh, leaving out, you know, whole chunks that are not germane, that are not, not at all needed, really, uh, but, you know, in a, in a more realistic uh, form or a more, more conventional form, you'd be, you know, spending a lot of time scene setting, introducing characters and so on. 
And here you could just talk to somebody and tell them about things. So that all of that, uh, in a way, sort of helped me get away from the big, you know, blockbuster novel about three decades and three friendships, uh, which is not not a novel, you know, I could have written or not a novel that I enjoy enjoy reading. I mean, it was sort of just allowed me to cover a lot of ground. The one that Asim rapidly. would have written, right? Definitely <laughs> the kind of novel Asim would have written, you know, full of full of all kinds of extremely well-researched detail, you know, about every aspect of the caste situation in India, you know, everything, all the political, sociological data very carefully processed and put together. But that was not uh, the novel that I was I was interested in doing, and not even a kind of political novel. I was, I was not interested in writing an explicitly political novel of the kind that Asim would 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 write. Uh, I felt the politics, whatever there is of politics, and what what is there of politics? I think politics in this novel is essentially the presence of ideas and ideologies, presence or maybe ideas and ideologies pressing down more upon the individuals described in this book than, say, you know, a, a, a character in some other era. I mean, I think we've lived through, we all realize now, three decades of intense ideology and they have shaped, determined our lives in all kinds of ways. And I think a political novel is one that registers uh, those pressures. And I think in that sense, it's a political novel. I mean, I, I... I wanted you to read this, but you didn't choose to. So can I read it out loud? Please. <laughs> Just because it makes it sort of makes sense here. And this to me felt like like a kind of the underlying. It's not big politics, small politics underlying um, the book, and and um, seemed to me very interesting in the context because he narrator writing to a girlfriend who is a past girlfriend who is a journalist and who's very very much a figure within the Twitter sphere, the social media. And so um, uh, an interesting kind of modern character, um, I mean, far more modern than me, for example, you know, it sort of strikes me as being very modern. <laughs> and uh, he says, I've forgotten where it is. From what I had seen of non-white people, starting with my libtard obsessed father, it seemed prudent to fear that whatever their skin color, the poor and oppressed today, were very likely to be persecutors tomorrow even sooner. I remember arguing with you, that is Aliyah, uh, about this, how phrases such as intersectionality and broader struggle against patriarchy that you used in your tweets didn't quite account for the fact that some brave protesters against tyranny in Tahir Square could turn, given the chance, into rapists. This comes at a moment of disillusionment for the, the hero, in a sense, so that's part of it. But, but it's also... It also seemed to me to make sense of a lot of the things that had come before um, and in some ways underpinned what happens to Asim and to Arun. I don't want to give away what happens to Arun because it's very interesting. But if you open the book behind you and show us the fly leaves. Oh, there, you've got it. Just open it because it's so beautiful. <laughs> come on, you've got to buy this, everybody. <laughs> Look at that. Our hero, our narrator, ends up there, I think. I've never been, so I don't know. But somewhere that looks like that. Um, so I think we should read the second section, because we're going to have a lot of questions from you and everybody out there as well. Um, perhaps just, do you want to comment on what I've just read? Yes, I think probably Arun is better placed to comment on that than I am. But I suppose, you know, if you look at um, the world that he finds himself in, um, I should also say that he 
at some point in the novel, he ends up in London, uh, where he comes across um, members and representatives of the metropolitan left or the metropolitan liberals who are very worked up about Brexit and about uh, they're all Remainers, of course. And he sort of assesses them. He, he, he listens to their conversations from his own particular perspective of political disorder and, and, and injustice and uh, is often uh, very critical of them as he is in this in this in this uh, particular particular instance. So it's it's very much I feel like, I, you know, I obviously kept a very clear distance from from him because I belong to that metropolitan well, formation I, I it in many ways. It's a self-critique. It's well. a kind of self-critique. <laughs> you know, the novel also does that. It offers you a platform for self-critique, uh, which you cannot really do in fiction without overcommitting yourself uh, and without being aligned with this or that. And then, of course, you know, the polemical um, uh, exchanges that follow fix you even more uh, or in, in one position or other. Whereas Fiction allows you that space to bring all kinds of conversations and perspectives into play, all kinds of uh, ideas into conversation uh, with each other. I mean, you know, I think um, I would like to think that someone with his background would indeed observe the metropolitan left in this in this in this manner and, and see just how in many ways disconnected they are from, say, the reality of North England. You know, it's all right to be uh, uh, remainers, of course. Um, so, so am I. Um, but you know, there, there is, there is something else going on that they're not aware of or not interested in at all. Uh, and so, I think you know, in many ways, he's kind of, he's also contrasting his own experience with the experiences of uh, the expats or uh, relatively very well-off people that he uh, finds here who have just very recently embraced politics, you know, post Brexit and post Trump. But that's what you're going to read. So I thought it was an interesting oh, yes. segue into this second section, which takes place in London. So this is this is an account of his um, life, a uh, little bit of account of his uh, bit of his life in uh, in London. After dinner somewhere, initially at some white draped table with napkin pyramids in a restaurant freshly recommended by the Evening Standard, where waiters opened menus as gingerly as an antiquarian bookseller I knew in Shimla exhibited an overpriced edition of the Illustrated London News, until in an awkward but necessary conversation, I reminded you that I was comfortably off only by Indian standards. We would take an Uber back, suddenly mute now in its darkness as you checked your social media feeds, often the first reports of the events we had just attended, the loud colors from your screen flowing across your face, whose eager intent always made me a bit jealous. To emerge from the car in your street, the private gardens with high railings on one side and glowing French windows on another, to open the blue front door of your apartment and hear it shut behind us with the oil click of an expensive lock, to then find ourselves subtly lit in amber in the tall gilt-framed hall mirror and hear the grandfather clock ticking vigilantly was to know security again. At a time when so many of my thoughts and memories were shaded by sorrow and guilt, your old apartment in Kensington, home to several generations of your family, and still suggesting in its renovated state all the great many things said and done inside it, became a kind of reassurance. The space and order and light of its vast high ceiling rooms suggesting a durable fastness against death and separation. 
During those long London twilights, the windows of even the homes of strangers showcased a reality that seemed to have stood firm and eternal for centuries. A woman lying in an armchair holding a glass of white wine, children reading or playing or drawing, a man taking off his tie, and a cat crawling out between roped back curtains to lounge fatly on a sill. Coming from a society rent by anarchic poverty and cruelty, where you could never feel history to be on your side, or any institution of government and law working in your favor, coming from a society that had frightened and traumatized so many of us for life, I was learning how to appreciate, or at least not be afraid of, a rich and steadfast world. Then too, we avoided living in that part of London, the journeys through terraces of brick past boarded up shops, cardboard dwellers, and iPhone snatchers, hints to me of a larger dereliction up north, the deindustrialized country about which I knew nothing, except that it had sprung Brexit upon unsuspecting Londoners. How much easier it was in that, yes, uncompromisingly fashionable and reassuringly expensive watering hole of Russian and Asian oligarchs, where the destitute, unlike India's, slumped in doorways, nearly always out of sight, to enjoy the city's array of parks, restaurants, and bookshops, to experience even things abandoned on the pavements, disemboweled sofas, collapsed hoovers, computer keyboards, as a kind of visual novelty. How lightly our legs skipped over the devout row of shoes on the pavement outside a mosque in Southall, where we had ventured to get your fix of desi khana at a restaurant serving authentically Gujarati food. And how great was the security of the rich tourists that I felt in the Mithai shop with a garlanded portrait of Modi we repaired to afterwards for some rasmalai. The security that those raving about kebab dives and Sufi shrines in seedy old Delhi, my old workplace, always knew. I didn't have to worry anymore about the Indian toilet cleaners at Heathrow. Like Asim in his suite at the Pierre in New York, I had been elevated above the meanness that was the fate of most immigrants to the city. And unlike them, I had in my mind the comforting knowledge that I could go back, that I didn't have to, after all, be here. I envied your intimacy with the city, the confident way you placed yourself in it and professed metropolitan habits. Let's meet at my regular, the LRB bookshop. Unconsciously trying to imitate you, I often found myself making observations that struck my own ears as affected. The best coffee roasters are in Shoreditch. And I suppressed the things that puzzled me, flat white coffee, orchids, rare and expensive in my mind, available at tube station florists, and the numerous white young men with thick, squarish beards and hats who steamed clones of Renoir and Manet. <laughs> I love that. So I think it's probably time to take questions from you and from um, whoever is out there in the digital world. And I'm sure Pankaj won't mind answering questions which don't completely um, uh, elide with what you may not yet have read or heard today. I just figured someone should ask a question. <laughs> Pankaj, in, in, in a lot of your non-fiction, you, and perhaps particularly in Age of Anger, you, you're could you could you speak up? There, I, I wanted to ask you about hope, I think, because I think on the sort of political left, uh, we we often feel like we have we have the answers, right? But 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 we're not we don't have the power. And 
you can disagree with that, obviously, and maybe I would too. But I, I increasingly have sort of conversations with people where, you know, we're all feeling very bleak about what's happening and what's going to happen. And I'm not asking you to say, it's okay, man, it's, it's going to be all right. <laughs> but maybe I am. <laughs> but so I wanted to ask about that. Is it, is it sort of, what do you think about hope? And uh, do you feel hopeless? I don't actually feel hopeless. Um, I think especially when I hear questions like that. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's awkward for me to talk to younger people about this, including my own daughter because I'm very aware that uh, my generation has, I mean, I think one could put it very bluntly, has screwed up the world in all kinds of ways and really given you uh, a, a terrible inheritance, uh, uh, very little to play with, very little to work with. I feel certainly, I think what my generation can do at this point or, or, or people in my generation is to make way um, and, and, and sort of, you know, make way for a younger generation to do the kind of things that we've been doing, which which includes writing, which includes thinking, which includes political engagement. Because, um, as I keep saying, I think we've lived through three decades of intense ideological indoctrination, which you have been spared because you've grown up in a time of adversity. We grew up at a time when things were looking uh, very good for all of us, and certainly, you know, people of my generation were there at the right time, including characters in this novel, to embrace those opportunities. But those opportunities are not available now, uh, not just for Indians, but for most people elsewhere. So I think, you know, in that sense, but that's why I mean, that's a source of my awkwardness that here I'm sitting as a beneficiary of three decades of deep inequality, uh, era marked by, you know, invis every kind of Injustice, of course, rendered invisible by, by, by ideology. And I feel like hope can really emerge from the kind of engagement um, that a younger generation brings, uh, you know, whether to politics or to, to, to literature. I think we've had a say uh, and, 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 and we've done our bit, uh, which was, you know, it turns out not very much, probably very damaging in the, in the, in the long term. I don't know if that answers your question, but I do see hope. I've not been damaging. Maybe not. Who knows? <laughs> wait, wait till we hear what his children say. <laughs> so I'm, I'm older than Pankaj, and I, I could say to you that, that there's definitely hope. I mean, you know, Pankaj has said we, we had a good run. We did have a good run. But when I remember the 70s, it seemed as if we were about to have nuclear war. <laughs> um, um, people were poor garbage everywhere in the streets, we didn't have electricity half the week. I mean, so things were pretty gloomy. Um, and then things seemed to get better again. I don't think I've changed my political positions very much, but, but um, you know, stuff happens. It's not always dependent in, on individuals in quite that way, although we do have something to say with it, certainly in the smaller realm. So yes to hope, even today, is not a good day for hope. <laughs> Um, I yes. have a question here from Luke in cyberspace. Um, Luke asks, you have commented elsewhere that your novel is in a way in conversation with the bend in the river, while some of the passages read out today are reminiscent of the mimic men. 
My Paul is another writer concerned with migrants in the midst of epochal change. Is yours the same epochal change that he wrote about or a new one? Definitely a new one, but I think it's impossible to get away from Naipaul. Um, I think it's, it's, uh, he's, a, he's a writer who, in every kind of way, not, as a, not, not, not only as a, as, a, as a personal example of a, of a writer coming from very unpromising uh, uh, set of circumstances, nevertheless, who makes himself a writer. And I think Amitabha, many other writers, would attest to the force and, and, and of, his, of, his, of his example. But I think in other ways, the exploration of the post-colonial world after the 1950s and 60s, the world of India, the world of Indonesia, many, many, many different uh, worlds in Asia and Africa, and the conclusions that he draws both in his fiction and non-fiction, those are conclusions you can violently disagree with, you can agree with, uh, whatever you do with them, you can never ignore them. So you have to, you have to reckon with, and, and you know, I very consciously put this conversation, uh, put this novel in conversation with, with, uh, with A Bend in the River, because that, I've, I think in many ways now that is emerging as is probably his, his most complex novel about, you know, the fate of uh, many, many post-colonial societies, just uh, what has happened there, what is the relationship with the past of those societies, and this is something I think this this novel also grapples with. Uh, what happens when you are in a great hurry to disown that particular past and to embrace um, ideologies of, of of modernity? There are two naipaul's. Obviously, there's a naipaul of nonfiction. There's a naipaul of, of of the fiction, and I think the fiction is far more complex and far more rewarding in 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 the end. And I think in in that sense, the mimic man has to be also um, part of this conversation because it's again about the colonial's encounter with, as, as uh, Lisa put in introduction, the, the relationship between the metropolis and the, and the periphery. Uh, those tensions are again, I think very few people have written about them as um, engagingly and rewardingly as, as, as Naipaul. One of, Pankaj, one of the running themes throughout your work is the corrupting and co-opting power of the market. So, for instance, probably my favorite line in End of Suffering was, it was as if a society prodigiously organized for expansion and consumption could absorb everything, even the few individuals who had once stood opposed to it. And a lot of your takedowns, which I love, are basically about hypocrisy and selling out. And I'm curious, how do you reconcile the fact that you yourself are a successful participant in this mechanism you criticize. <laughs> you know, for example, you, you can be unaware of the fact that the spectacle of you and Neil Ferguson knifing each other in public is good for both yours and Neil Ferguson's sales. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I, you know, I suppose we're all tainted in some way or other. Uh, hard to avoid that. And I think best to admit that, um, that, you know, if you are kind of, you know, working essentially not very far away from this 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 particular marketplace um, you describe, then at you know some level or other um, you will be you will be compromised too. You know uh, I have also published in magazines and periodicals owned by Rupert Murdoch. I think that's probably the biggest sinner that I've that I've <laughs> that I've committed. Um, and there are others you know other hypocrisies that I'm certainly very very guilty of. 
But I think at the same time, I feel like those hypocrisies have not been large enough to compromise, you know, the things I've written, uh, not entirely compromise them, perhaps. And, you know, that is my kind of modest hope. Read the novel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is a two-part question, but if one part is irrelevant, just ignore. Um, so I love your analysis in Age of Anger of this Resentment as a global phenomenon, and, and from what you've read, it, the novel picks up similar themes. But I'm not sure I'm exactly adding a note of scepticism, but it strikes me that the, in, in the immediate present, <clears throat> I wonder if this, some of this is changing, because, you know, in Britain today, outside of this room, nobody cares whether you've read Proust, I think. I mean, it, so if you want social status, you buy a Premier League football club. I mean, canonical culture has lost a lot of its status. Um, if you Google image VS Naipaul 80th birthday party 2015, maybe you were there. I mean, there are a lot of guests there, George Osborne, Geordie Gregg, a lot of celebrities and so on. Which contemporary novelist would that be the case in Britain or anywhere else? Um, and secondly, I wonder... Your defense on the LRB blog of fiction was very interesting. It's, it's something that many writers sort of have been denigrating for a long time, the idea that fiction can confront contemporary realities in quite that way. Um, have they been denigrating? I mean, um, who, who were you thinking well, of? Well, I, I guess the idea that fiction has sort of become redundant over the past 20 years in terms of confronting experience, mediatized experience and so on. Yeah, I mean, there is definitely uh, that idea. I, I don't know whether, you know, people seriously believe in it or believe in it strongly enough to actually stop writing because everyone is attempting to write the Internet novel, for instance, you know, to take on board uh, the way the Internet is interfering or, or, or maybe messing up our, our, our inner lives or cognitive abilities or our, our private relationships and, and, and so on and so forth. But, I mean, I think it is true that uh, the world has certainly become a far more unmanageable place than it was before uh, when we were all living in relatively self-sufficient, isolated societies. You know, the world that I'm describing in the early pages of this novel is, is a world where you are getting the news literally a day late um, through, the, through, the, through the newspaper. Um, so it's much, much more difficult to take on board. I mean, I found it difficult, you know, going back to the novel um, with all this experience of, of 20 years of globalization behind me. But I think there are still ways to cut through that, to cut through the noise. And, you know, in the end, what is the novel concerned with? I think if the novel is concerned with human personality, it's concerned with consciousness, uh, the unfolding of human personality. And human personality is always a mysterious thing. And that's why we're, I mean, it's at some level, it's so strange that we should pick up a novel. Uh, why are we picking up a novel to immerse ourselves in the life experience of some other individuals that we don't know, have never met? But we do it because we are genuinely fascinated by other lives. Um, we want to know about them, about their consciousness or how they have responded to the world that we live in. And I feel that if you start with that, I think it's it's possible. It's actually possible to also, you know, bring in this unmanageable data that we are constantly assaulted with, and to also put it in the in the novel without turning the novel itself into something unmanageable. Obviously, a, a earlier point about uh, Rizontimo. 
um, about Naipaul's birthday party. I should look up that Google image. That sounds fast. Forgot sounds to fast. invite you. <laughs> is, it the, is this the same one where the Rothschilds are also probably, present? Probably. Yeah. Any more questions? Digital? You've departed from non-fiction to fiction. You know, we, we, we love the romantics, you know. You've Thank ended you. up back in, back, back in a place where you're writing fiction. Is it a departure or is it a feeling that you wanted to get something out that you couldn't get in nonfiction? Who are your influences? You know, who, who, who are going to inspire the young guys that obviously have inspired you? I mean, it's definitely a you know exhilarating feeling. Um, I mean, I I think I've bored my uh, wife and daughter about this a lot about you know just how I've enjoyed writing this book far far more than I've enjoyed any, writing any other book or all the other books combined. So it's been really, in that sense, you know, sometimes I wonder, although I should not say this um, before my publisher or my agent, whether I'll ever go back to nonfiction, because I feel that this has allowed me to write about a whole lot of things uh, that I couldn't do in, in, in nonfiction. And going back to nonfiction, again, means going back to formula. It means going back to observing certain protocols, constraints on your imagination. Oh, there are a lot of people doing very good stuff out there. You know, I will, I will not be missed. I will not be missed, I assure you. Um, and I think I probably, as I keep saying, I should also make way when people ask me to write nonfiction today, I recommend a younger writer because I really do feel very strongly that people like me should be thinking of retirement. We should make way for younger people. I mean, I, sometimes I feel slightly ashamed of, you know, still sitting there squatting in these in these you know positions uh, which should be vacated for 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 other people for younger people uh, I feel ashamed that people are still writing me to asking me to write or magazine editors are asking me to commission ask or commissioning me to write about something when they should be commissioning younger people uh, so I'm in the way I'm in the way and I should you know get out soon so you think <laughs> you think of fiction as a retirement plan it is very much a retirement plan. <laughs> Wait it's a way of it's a way of list. moving gracefully, you know, towards towards the door mark exit, you know. <laughs> okay, I'm going to write a novel next. <laughs> Any more questions? Thank you for there. a very interesting discussion. Um, I had a question about ambiguity, and uh, I got a sense of a real sense of ambiguity of being able to hold contradictory beliefs quite comfortably in a way that perhaps we don't aren't able to do in the wider world outside of certain circles. And I wonder what your thoughts are on perhaps a new role of fiction in bringing the important role of ambiguity back into the real world. Well, I think it's particularly important in this instance because at these, um, I, I mean, there are many ways of answering that, I suppose, but I'm thinking more of the characters in this book who are all being trained in a particular way to be engineers to be men of science. And it's an interesting phenomenon that some of the biggest supporters, or certainly the most aggressive, strident supporters of Hindu nationalism in India, happen to have tech backgrounds. And I think there is a reason there, that none of them really have been trained. Their, their, their positions are so strident, they're so partisan in their, in their thinking, so driven to a kind of binary thinking about issues. And one of the reasons is that they've never been sufficiently exposed to the role of ambiguity in human affairs. And that can only come, I'm afraid, through exposure to literature. 
so if you start at the age of 12, which is what many of these people do, to you know deepen your knowledge of of science, of, of physics, uh, and keep doing that for the next 10, 20 years, 10, 15 years at least, before you get a you know very good job, then you're basically very, very detached from the world where things are not clear cut at all. And that is the realm that we all inhabit, uh, where the rule is contradiction, it's, it's, it's doubt, it's uncertainty. And so I think in that sense, you know, what, what fiction does, and I mean, journalism deals too much with uh, a certain kind, especially journalism now, because you're up against it, you're up against all kinds of malicious fictions being floated by demagogues, uh, podcasters, YouTubers. So you're up against it. So you also fall into the trap of speaking unambiguously about certain things. About you, you also fall into the trap of taking set positions, which often turn out to be very shakily grounded. So I feel like it's it's only really fiction where you can give back to ambiguity its central place in, in, in human affairs. I think we should go and talk to our Department of Education and <laughs> point out to our various ministers responsible for schools <laughs> that um, the STEM subjects may not be enough <laughs> or not in the way they're taught. Yeah, sorry, there was a question over there. That That's very good, Pankaj. I mean, that's so true. Thank you. It's really building on the last question, but I was just wondering if the you know, returning to fiction after such a long period of time, perhaps um, being forced by that challenge to sympathize with people with a wide range of perspectives, whether that had actually um, changed any of your political views at all? Uh, probably not, because I think, again, the reality of political confrontation today is such, political antagonism is such that I think any kind of weakness, for instance, can be quite fatal to your position. I think it's important to hold positions. And I think, you know, what referring, going back to your earlier question, I, I, I really do think we are in a very, uh, 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 very desperate situation. And every day brings fresh evidence of that, where I feel that, you know, I have to disconnect my imaginative, my life as a, as a writer of imaginative prose from, you know, my political life and you know the political life that I that I pursue in my journalism in my fiction you know my taking particular positions on on uh, on certain issues uh, it does certainly broaden as you say uh, the range of sympathies that 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 I have uh, helps me to understand particular positions and perspectives but there are certain positions that are non-negotiable I mean you know you have to be against uh, uh, mendacity or, or you have to be against racism. And, you know, I'm not going to be compromising on, 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 on those particular positions. Maybe I'll have a broader understanding of where a certain form of racism is coming from, particularly the more insidious varieties of racism. But it's, it's not, uh, you know, I'm not going to give up my opposition to those malign things. Thank you, Pekka. We're going to take one more question online. We have a, another online one. Uh, this is from Apurva. Does secularism which itself was an illusion in the past, stand a chance in today's India. Is there opposition to Hindu nationalism and Brahmin authoritarianism? I think, um, you know, unfortunately, Brahminism, Brahminism as an ideology, Brahminism as a, as a kind of 
caste uh, affiliation has made a massive comeback. Uh, people are very proud to proclaim themselves Brahmins and, 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 and upper caste. And I think in that context, uh, the invocation of secularism is not going to not going to do it. I think um, I think we, we should all be thinking more of pluralism. I think pluralism is probably a, a better platform in the sense because, as the questioner himself admitted, uh, secularism has been revealed too much as an ideology of you know of the elites, and I think uh, been discredited as a result. Uh, whereas pluralism has much older traditions uh, in in India and indeed everywhere else. You know, uh, the uh, discussion the other day about um, the you know, Jews in Baghdad or elsewhere, we were, we were, these were all pluralist societies, um, uh, which then start turned the against week. on, this was on, on start the week. Uh, and pluralism has been the, really the biggest victim uh, in the last, you know, 30, 40 years, 40, 50 years of nationalist consolidation. And secularism in that sense has been revealed as a sort of very narrow ideology of a privileged elite, whereas pluralism is a reality that exists all across the social hierarchy. But you can't have a pluralism with objective choice exams or engineering degrees. Yes. <laughs> it's very difficult because there's one answer. Anyhow, um, I think there was one last question there. If it's a short one, we'll take it. But otherwise, we really um, should stop. I just wanted to know, do you, do you have any recommendations for younger writers who should be? Do you have any recommendations for younger writers that you're talking about that we should read probably? Oh, you know, um, Whenever people ask me for recommendations, I recommend a whole lot of Australian writers. <laughs> and this is partly because I feel like they are the most neglected uh, group of writers in the world. And they keep on producing, uh, you know, one world-class writer after another. And yet, you know, they continue to be neglected. Um, I'm not sh entirely sure whether, I mean, I think I'm sh very uh, 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 most of them could be read with great profit by younger readers. And one of them, I saw her book, uh, she has a new book out called Michelle de Kretzer, who I think is one of the you know, most interesting, most original writer working today. Uh, she has a new novel out. It's actually, you know, you should look her uh, other books up, up as well. Um, there is Gail Jones, another um, Australian writer of, you know, again, you know, really sort of breathtaking uh, originality. Um, there are also older uh, Australian writers that I'm constantly talking about uh, to no avail. Um, but, you know, also I feel there are a whole lot of writers who've been neglected. They were once very well known and are not, not now sort of fallen into critical neglect, such as, such as Nadine Godimer, who I think... Um, uh, Increasingly now, she seems to me the peer of Naipaul in many ways. Maybe, you know, sometimes, maybe I think if you look at her achievement as a whole, uh, I think it probably exceeds Naipaul's achievement. But definitely worth returning to, because here is a writer who wrote uh, living under uh, an explicitly white supremacist regime. So a lot of the conversation today about historical injustices, about racial injustices or, uh, or, or, or white supremacy in general, um, I think that itself would be a good reason to, to, to sort of read her novels today. But I think um, what would be an even more compelling reason 
is that she's a she was a great artist and you know the you can only envy the way she you know sets a scene uh conjures up an atmosphere uh describes or, or picks up little details um so in every way aesthetically politically intellectually uh, reading her books is a sort of enthralling experience um so you know i can give you some more I'm going to stop you there, Pankaj, because we could be here all night with our favorite writers. There are a lot of books. Look around. Thank you all for being here, Pankaj. Thank you so much. Please buy this book. It's a treat. And um, thank you, David. And thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit LondonReviewBookshop.co.uk forward slash events.